listening to the Arise Church podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. off in our study a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, for those of us who were actually here on Super Bowl Sunday, we left off finding Paul in this place where he described himself to be struggling and to be agonizing with the uh, effort of an athlete who is competing uh, for a prize. At the end of Colossians chapter 1, Paul said things like, I'm suffering and I'm filling up uh, in my flesh the afflictions of Christ and uh, I, I toil, I struggle with all of God's energy working powerfully in me. It was Super Bowl Sunday and by closing we said uh, that if the Chiefs were going to maintain their lead or if they were going to actually do what it took to win, then they were going to have to not give up in the third or the fourth quarter, right? They were going to have to struggle and they were going to have to work really hard all the way to the goal if they were going to achieve what they were after. More importantly, we likened that or linked that to the fact that Christ has already defeated our enemy. He's already defeated our enemy and he has secured for us an eternal prize through the gospel. That was all over Colossians chapter 1. And if we understand our victory, we say that we will be able to emulate Paul and imitate him, to work hard just like him, to strive after the goal just like him, and to uh, make it ours, as it were. Paul said he basically left it all on the field for the glory of God and for the sake that uh, for the sake of the church that Christ died to redeem. And if you think about all the theology, all of the understanding of who God is that was jam-packed in Colossians chapter 1, you should walk away marveling at the fact that Jesus Christ is supreme. And you should always then walk away transformed to the degree that if he's supreme, I want to make him supreme in all of my conversations, my relationships, my stewardship, my finances, and, and, and so on. That I want to speak like it. I want to serve like it. I want to steward my time, talent, and treasures like Jesus Christ is supreme. And I want to strive toward the goal of seeing the final realization of that. That was the place that we left off at the end of Colossians 1. And last week we had a time to really just consider generosity. Uh, Sean brought us a wonderful message on that. And I just wanted us to get back as we look to Colossians chapter 2 uh, to, to not forgetting that this is where we found Paul and this is where we find ourselves when we get into our text. So if you're now thumbing through, you probably should go ahead and check for Colossians chapter 2 or maybe you have a scripture journal with you. But today I want to answer a question, and I want to answer the question to say, yeah, so uh, you, we know now why we ought to make Jesus Christ supreme, and we know that he absolutely is. We've got the why down because we've got theology, but now the question is, well, then for what? 
For what reason? And what is our vision of this quote-unquote victory or the goal? Paul had gone to lengths to show us why earlier in chapter 1, as we turn uh, to to uh, Colossians chapter 2, he had gone to lengths to help us to understand that foundation. We always talk about knowing your why, and now we get introduced to somewhat of his own vision or purpose statement for his ministry in the church. I love the fact that Sean just prayed and asked that God would make us effective ministers. So read with me Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 and 7. Or 1 through 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and in whom are all or hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of God to us today. As we consider these verses this afternoon, I'd like to answer our what question by looking at five things that are worth fighting for. Five things that for every minister in the local church or in the church at large, period, point blank, which is every person, we believe firmly in the priesthood of all believers, and that's women, that's men, that's boys and girls who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at five things that every single one of us ought to see as worth fighting for. So let's just look back at the text and try to take them one by one. Point number one, I usually give us them kind of right away, but I think they're longer today. So if you're following along, you'll get all the points and I'll make sure that that's clear. We're just going to jump straight into our first point. Our first point is that we must fight for the church to be daringly unashamed. We ought to fight for the church to be daringly unashamed. If we look at Paul and what he says here, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. You know, taking that at face value, it would be somewhat easy to just see that their hearts will be encouraged and for us to think about the Hallmark cards that got passed around this weekend and what that looks like to give somebody an encouraging note. My kids wanted to get 20 and 30 different things to pass around to their classmates and some of them were like, okay, you sure you want to be mine, you know? <laughs> but most of them were just like, you are fantastic. If we don't really comprehend with Paul what he's saying, we'll think of it just like that, that he's saying he struggles and he toils, that you would be encouraged like a Hallmark card just came to you. That's not what Paul is saying, loved ones. So what does it mean for these Christians to have their hearts, or as another translation uh, says, you know, not just have their hearts be encouraged, but that they would be strong in heart? I want you to remember the context we got a group of false teachers who are intimidating the Colossians by teaching that Jesus Christ is not God 
and that they themselves are not truly God's children, and there's so much more that they can know outside of Christ and outside of the church. They're being caused to shrink back for the, the likes of the fact that they're fake. Now, we started out our series saying it's all about Jesus and reminding ourselves that Paul wrote to this little bitty unknown and just about forgotten about church to say, no, you're genuinely real. You, you really do belong to the Father because of all that Jesus Christ has done, not because of who you are, because of some prominent status that you can achieve. You guys remember that, right? He wrote to them to encourage them that way because they were shrinking back and they were starting to walk away. History tells us that actually a lot of people were tempted to walk away and uh, many also actually did in Colossae. And so this had prompted Epaphras to seek Paul's help. And so then he wrote and, and visited Paul and Paul wrote this letter. So again, remember the context. Now, Paul's continuing here to say that he works really hard and he prays for Christians to be encouraged and to have strong hearts. The word for encourage sounds exactly like what it means to put courage into a person. Why would it be important to put courage in a person? Because they're doubting, because they're disbelieving. Because they're discouraged. Because they've got all kinds of anxieties and things that depress them that have caused many of these Christians to even reevaluate whether or not they're genuinely in the faith. So the purpose of Paul writing and his struggling, that word, again, is, is just the word we get agony from. And again, it's, 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 it's athletic Olympian uh, language. He's calling into their attention to say, I work like I'm competing for the gold medal, not for my sake, but for your sake. And I work really hard for that. And here's one of the things that as I'm agonizing, as I'm struggling, I want to see come about. That you would have a strong heart. That you would be encouraged. That you would have courage. Let's turn it around for a second and ask a question, not rhetorical. You can blurt it out if you feel like you have an answer. What is a discouraged and a depressed Christian like in terms of their kingdom life? Satan knows that that person isn't good for much. The, the, the kingdom of darkness that is waging war against the church and does not want to see the progress of the kingdom of God and light moving forward, which we just uh, would have read in Colossians 1, that we've been delivered from that place, that kingdom of darkness, and we've been transferred to a new place where we have royal standing, and it's a kingdom of light. Kingdom of darkness led by Satan doesn't want to see the progress of that. You guys know, like I know, that light is offensive. You raise those windows back up, the darkness doesn't run out there, the light comes in here. You open up a closet, light doesn't, or the darkness doesn't jump out into the hallway, light rushes in. Satan knows that, and that's why God had to tell the church, hey, the gates of hell, the defensive weapons won't prevail against the church. 
But you know what Satan does? He depresses us. He distresses us. He distracts us. He gets us down. And Paul says, hey, I'm writing so that you would have courage. If Satan can succeed, we, we can't serve. A, a, a depressed Christian won't speak. They, they can't fight for themselves spiritually. They're often prone to all types of sin. And, and the discouraged person is, is usually the one who's prone to some kind of enslavement or addiction. Because I'm running to other things in order to get satisfaction and in order to, to find my worth or my identity. This discouraged person we know, yeah, it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be sex, but the reality is, is oftentimes it's just relationships. I just go to everybody else because I just don't think that I have what it takes. I don't know if I can really get to God because of what my life looks like right now. Satan gets us into those spots because he wants to just cut us all off and make us ineffective. He can't take your Christianity uh, away in terms of like taking you out of God's hand or making you lose your salvation or keeping heaven away from you, but he can make you so ineffective here. He can keep you on the bench. He can get you to a point where you just kind of sit down on the sidelines. You don't join Paul and say, I toil, I struggle, I agonize, and I do that on behalf of everybody else. No, I, I'm more so just kind of like, I'm just kicking it here. He can definitely do that. And he lulls us in all kinds of ways. He even throws sin in the mix that, that causes us to uh, kind of go to sleep. If sin and Satan can get you down, then you'll be of no good use for the gospel uh, and that's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. If we're going to join Paul in this purpose and this mission of, of seeing the church come to a daring, unashamed uh, life and a daring, unashamed proclamation, you know what we've got to do? We got to be the kind of people who would say like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to say with Paul, I'm unashamed of the gospel if I allow myself to be, uh, you know, set back or if I shrink back or if I'm constantly wrestling with comparison or I'm thinking about what other people are thinking of me. All the kinds of stuff that Satan throws in our way. Paul wants the church to be able to be unashamed of the gospel and courageous about spreading it to every tribe, tongue, and nation. So he just says, and our, again, our English language didn't pick it up, so I tried to labor really hard to help us to understand. He, I'm praying that you would have courage to take the gospel forward. I'm praying that you would have a strong heart because all kinds of people are going to lie. The false teachers are going to try and cut you down. Sin and Satan wage war against your soul. Your own lusts and passions are going to try and make you ineffective. And I'm praying and I'm working really hard to put boldness and courage inside of you that you would take the gospel to the nations. That's why Paul toils and struggles. That's worth fighting for, friends. Not only are we to fight for the church to be daringly unashamed, but we are to fight for the church to defer to unity. Fight for the church to defer to unity. He says there at the second half of that verse, verse number 2, Colossians 2, 
that their hearts may be encouraged. And then he says, being knit together in love. Paul's second goal for the church was for it to be unified with the false cult and false teachers who were attacking the church. You know what was creeping in more than depression and more than, you know, the distractions and distress that I'm talking about? It was division. Way more than all the, uh, the, the things that come that separate us from our relationship to God and our effectiveness in, uh, you know, gospel proclamation. It's separating us from each other. These false teachers are saying, well, some of y'all were Jews and you've been circumcised, so you're a little bit closer, but still, Jesus is not the Messiah. And then y'all, you guys are barbaric people. You guys are people from, like, the other side of the tracks. There's no way in the world you could be a part of God's family. That's why when you get to Colossians 3.11, Paul has gotten to a crescendo of what does it look like for us to do life in a new, uh, as a new humanity and in a new place called the church. And he says here, there is no such thing as a Jew and a Greek, a barbarian and a Scythian, a slave person or a free person. Christ is all and he's in all. We don't go by our distinctions. There's nothing that's superficial about us, nothing that is on the surface, nothing that we call a class or a status that should make a person feel like, yeah, there's upmanship here, or there are better people. There are people who are more qualified for salvation than me. It just is not the case. Satan is launching division at the church. Paul is struggling and agonizing for the unity of the church. Why don't you listen to Jesus praying in John chapter 17 and see if you can pick up on what he said here. Jesus praying to the Father says, my prayer is not for them alone. This is John 17, round about 17 and following. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus agonized in prayer about our unity, that we would defer to one another like the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit in this love relationship that says oneness, unity. Being knit together in love is what our text tells us in Colossians chapter 1. The exact same thing, that there would be a togetherness that launches an attack right back against dark forces and against false teaching. There's no distinction. There's no better person. There's no more qualified individual or less qualified individual. No, not at all. The church is to be one. By reading John chapter 17, we see it's not just Paul's like goal or what he wants for them. It is literally Jesus Christ's prayer. Do you think that God the Father honors the prayer of Jesus Christ just a day and a half before he goes to the cross? Do you think that Jesus knew what to pray for you and I? Because he said, I'm not just praying for these disciples who are over here behind me asleep. I'm praying for those who will believe on their account as well. So that's 2,020 years later. If you believe in Jesus, he prayed for you at that time and he continues to pray for you. And one of the paramount things he wants is for you to defer to one another in unity and be in love and be one. What an amazing thing to think about and what a concept to fight for. If I'm going to be an effective minister, I've got to fight for unity. This has to be the goal of every church. 
But I want us to realize and be real with ourselves. It, it doesn't come easily. Does it? Do you feel like unity comes easy? Is there any context in which you live where unity comes uh, easy? Let's start at your dinner table. It's something that must be worked for. It must be labored for. I think in every congregation and in, in, in every household. Remember, he's not just praying for local church here. The first thing he says is, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Every single Christian, not just little C, local church, the, the big C, everybody who is truly a believer. I struggle and I, I, I work real hard for this. I remember looking at, uh, as I just read through, I know some of us are reading this whole like uh, 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 Colossians throughout the week. It was somewhere in Colossians chapter 4. He said about Epaphras, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling, using the same word, on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. He's saying, it's not just me, even Epaphras, the guy that they really tried to undercut and say he ain't really nobody, right? Even he struggles really hard in the same way, and it's for you to be mature. And I would even add, it's for the church to be united. Something we've got to work for. We've got to work hard because Satan works hard. He wants to bring disunity in the ministries of the church. He wants to bring disunity between us and another church. He wants to bring disunity in our gospel communities and, and with our kids' ministry, and especially among our leaders. He especially wants our leaders to be divided. Our leadership community, our elders, I mean, he doesn't want that. We started out a week ago in an elder meeting, and, and we read a, uh, an article that said, hey, the best leader of a church is a team. Satan hates that. And I can guarantee you that we came into that meeting that day with some kind of disagreements and some things we were thinking in our hearts and, and minds and questions that we had, and God unified and reminded us, we got to work hard to keep this thing together. You have to work hard to keep this thing together. Satan wants you to be divided. He wants us to be divided. We'll be more ineffective than we are if we're depressed. So what must we do to fight for the church to defer to one another in unity? I just got a couple verses here. You can write these down. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. It says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Man, I really want to be flipping some pages with y'all, but you guys know I don't have my glasses, so I'm like just going, I'm just following my manuscript here. I'm not walking around as much as I want to. Like, make every effort, make every single effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He commands the church at Ephesus, 100 miles away, same similar context, Gentiles, for the most part, just now being included and need to know that all these people who are trying to unsettle them and tell them that they can't genuinely be Christians because they're not ethnically a part of the kingdom of Israel, he's saying, you know what? Y'all need to work real hard to maintain unity and don't care about what anybody else tries to throw at you because it's really coming from Satan. Later in that chapter, we realize that this includes things like even uh, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you, Ephesians 4.32. So with the kind of like deep commitment to each other that says, I'm not even going to hold things over you that you may have really wrongly done to me. I'm going to work really hard to maintain unity. Philippians, he told, writing from the same prison cell, I, uh, you should be a peacemaker. 
And we need to work really hard to help other people to be unified. In Philippians chapter 4, he said that, verses 2 and 3. He said that you should be humble and you should be considering others' interests over yourself, writing from that same prison cell in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. I want you to imagine with me this, uh, this, this picture that most of you, you'll immediately be able to see. Two rams on the side of a hill, steep hill, narrow pathway. I want you to imagine those two rams coming toward one another. One has just been satisfied from a brook up along the side of the hill, and the other one is on its way up. If you're imagining this right now and you've seen what two rams naturally do when they come toward another, one another, you know what this looks like. And to think of a steep hill, to think of like there's, there's one going up and there's one going down and they're on the side. And I don't know if a lot of us know this, but as I was just trying to get deeper into my illustration, I realized, oh, yeah, lots of rams die that way because they get knocked off the side of the hill and they fall to their demise. That makes total sense. Now I understand why this was on my heart. Okay, so if you've ever seen them face off, you know the destruction that comes. You know that somebody is going to be hurt beyond this and that there seems to be like maybe one that's more right than the other right or stronger than the other and they just kind of push and, and slam into each other and they just want to get their way. This happens in the local church. This happens in the church when we are not struggling and toiling to make every effort and to maintain and to be knit together in love, to defer to one another in unity. Now imagine that as you get closer uh, to to the image, you see that these animals are heading towards each other. And the one that's on the the downside of the hill is trying to go up. Once they get close to each other, he just lays down. He does something unprecedented. You wouldn't have been able to predict that. In fact, you was ready, right? You was ready to see the showdown. He lays down, and the other ram walks over him, passes by on his way, and he goes on his way. If that were to happen, you'd be wowed by it, And I think it would cause you to be challenged by it, right? And it make you say, I want that to be a part of my life, my experience, et cetera, et cetera. When Jesus prayed for us to have unity, and he says, if that happens, the world's going to know that you sent me. He's saying that it would be even greater than seeing that. It'd be much greater than seeing this unprecedented thing happen on the side of a hill where all of a sudden one of the rams, instead of charging forward, decides to just lay down and let the other walk over him so that they could both go on their way. That's the picture that Paul is calling for in the church when he says, man, I struggle real hard that you be knit together in love. The knit together has a deference to it. It's not just that we're together and we're like, you know, twins, Siamese twins or whatever, right? And, and we just can't be separated. It's that, no, like my, uh, my, my attitude is, is for your, uh, def- it's, it's for you more than anything. That's why I use the word love, agape, sacrificial. It's like, I want us to have a relationship. I want the church to have a relationship that just gives it up all of it for each other. I think with the picture of that, that ram that I'm talking about, then we, we get 
back to the call to be humble from Philippians chapter 2, and it reminds us, down is the way up. Down is the way up. If we're going to defer to one another in unity in this church, we've got to be willing and ready to humble ourselves. We've got to outdo one another with showing honor, which sometimes looks like crazy when you go to a, 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 you know, a little like a Christian gathering and there's pizza and there's one slice better. It's like, you have it. No, you have it. You have it. No, you take it. No, I'm not eating it. Like, well, that's, that'll never happen in my house, right? <laughs> but, but the thing is, is that we, we, we should be the kind of people who would say, it's not about my preference. It's not about what I want. Let, let me let you pass first. Let me let you go. Let's be knit together in love of the same mind and the same heart. Let's strive together. Paul made that same argument to the Corinthians. This hurts. First Corinthians chapter 6, he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Why are you still angry? Why are you suing one another? Why are you taking one another to court? Why don't you just let somebody wrong you? Why don't you just lay down and let somebody walk over you? Why don't you let your agenda go? We have got to fight for unity with that in mind, that singular focus in mind. Jesus had already said, turn your other cheek. If somebody strikes you on one side, turn to the other side. If you've got a coat, they don't have a coat, take yours off, give it to them. Even if you just lay it down across a puddle and let them walk over it, right? Our attitudes should be that we defer to one another in unity, that we are knit together in love, agape, sacrifice for each other. Got so much more here. Let me just say this. This will change the way that you carry yourself toward people who have a different perspective than you, maybe in your church or outside your local church, that are, that are Christians for sure. But on these secondary issues, you guys have these, these polarizing views. It'll change our, our, our attitudes about people who have different political persuasions than us. It'll definitely change the way we talk about that stuff online, true or not true the way we engage in debates and conversations. Down is the way up. Here's our third point. Our third point is that we must fight for the church to have durable understanding. Durable understanding. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then he adds this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Here we notice another one of Paul's goals. He's desiring that the church would have full assurance. That's where we get that, that I mean, it, the, the word just means complete. Um, uh, something that is, is, is unbreakable, if you would. That's where I'm getting this idea of durable, this durable understanding. He wants them to have stable and reliable understanding, not just of like things that are floating out there. The Gnostics are saying you can find knowledge in us and in all kinds of other people and all kinds of other things. You can get deeper and deeper and deeper in everything else. Christ is pretty shallow. 
Here, Paul argues and says, what are you talking about? All of the riches, all of the assurance, all of the wisdom, all of the knowledge. they're, They're all treasures that are hidden in him. You can't even find true knowledge without him. Doesn't that sound like the Proverbs that says, the beginning of uh, what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Another one says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Like you, the starting point and the end point, everything that we will get to that is knowledge or wisdom or that which we need in order to operate in life, it's all hidden in Jesus Christ. We've got to have an unshakable understanding of that. People want to combat this. I'm sure that some of you guys are having conversations with somebody who's of another religion, who is atheist, who is agnostic. Or, you know, I know you have these conversations, and I know that there are times where you're like, man, I don't, I don't even know. How, what do I say? I, gosh, that's... Paul says, I struggle, I toy, toil. Your elders, your pastors, we struggle we toil in prayer and in practice for you to have a deep and adorable understanding of all that is in Christ knowledge wisdom the treasure the whatever the, the, the gnostics would have called depth and deeper knowledge all, we just read that he created everything that everything was created by him and that it's for him and it's through him and it's to him right we, we said that Christ is preeminent. He's supreme above all else. There's nothing else that we could get to that would be better. Paul's saying you need to have some stability there. Christ is the only way to godliness. He came to earth and he died. He was raised by the Spirit from the dead. He was seen by the angels at his tomb. We know that there were 500 eyewitnesses that seen him at, at one time. There, there was even, uh, you know, his, his message has gone to the nations. We're all the way here at the end of the opposite coast talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Like, this is all accurate, and we've got to be able to study it and to know it. You know how you do that? There's two ways. Two ways to come to a durable understanding. I'm going to skip through the first one. Through the word, through the truth, through the scriptures. Got that? Two ways to come to a durable understanding. Through the word. I don't think I need to argue that with you. Let me beat our drum for a second on the second one. I think what we might miss is that a way we come to this, this durable understanding, is, is through the first two points that we talked about. Through the first two points that we talked about, the courage that we need and the pursuit of unity. If you think about the connection between these words, he's saying, I'm, I'm praying that uh, your heart be, be encouraged and that you be knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full, fullness and assurance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The thing is, is you're not going to be able to do that alone is the point. So the second one is we do it through the word, but the other one is we do it through one another. We say this all the time. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christians, right? Even if you right now are thinking about attending another church, going to another place or whatever it is, we want to commend you to another body next week. Don't take time off. You can't go and like figure things out on your own and get stronger that way. You've got to be in relationship with people to where there's real belonging. If you're going to experience the fullness and adorable understanding, it doesn't only come by, oh, I get to know a whole bunch of stuff and read it on my own. It comes through relationship. God does stuff in our gatherings that he would never do while we were all alone and by ourselves. He speaks to us, not just through his word, but he speaks to us by the way he's working through other people and in our lives. 
That's why we always encourage you to be a part of community, be a part of gospel communities. Get in. Did you hear? I mean, did you see some of you, maybe on Facebook, even one of our pastors is saying, I was in distress. I, I've, been, I've been struggling this week, but God showed up through his people this week in a worship gathering in somebody's living room. That's the church. That's how we have or come to a durable understanding is by being together. Is that, that, that point made, y'all? I'm just about out of time. Let me give you at least the, 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 the last two, and we'll talk about uh, some more of this as an intro maybe next week. Our fourth one is that we've got to fight for the church to be disciplined and unstained. To be disciplined and unstained. And the last one I know we won't get to is to have a deep and an unwavering faith. That would have been point five. We'll talk about it again next week. Point number four, just to say a few things about that. Where am I getting that from? Well, he just said that I want you to come to the place where you have a deep understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery. And then in verse number five, he says, for though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. These words are actually military terms. He's not just saying good order. He's literally saying discipline. I rejoice at knowing that you have a disciplined walk with him. These people are trying to unsettle you and tell you you don't qualify because you don't know enough outside of Christ. And he says, when I think of you in my prayers, I rejoice at the fact that you realize holiness is still right. That the spirit of God has transformed your life and made you good. I rejoice at seeing that you got firm faith, not because of what you do, not because of, uh, of any of your efforts like on your own, but literally because you have this place in Christ that has made you holy and you maintain that. As we transition today to communion and even as we sing some of the songs that are coming up, you know what I want you guys to be working through? I want you to be thinking of where does God need to make a change in my heart, in my life, in that manner, so that I would have a very clear, disciplined, and unstained testimony and witness. To the degree that somebody who heard about me and my faith, they'd say, hey, you got firm faith, yes, but you got good order as well. You're walking in holiness. You're walking in goodness. You're operating like a military officer who's going out to battle and who knows that he ought not to be concerned about civilian affairs and things that are happening back home, but his commitment is to his marching orders. And so he lives a life worthy of the gospel that he believes. Now do you see how all those messages really all come together? I mean, we've taken six weeks to go through a few sentences. All of it is all together. When Jesus uh, has called, or, or when Paul is writing to the Colossians, what he's literally saying to them is, I want you to know, no matter what anybody else says about you out there, the real test of your faith, the real authentic, authentic proof of your faith would be that you're known for good order and discipline. You're known for leading holy lives, not debauchery. You're not known for being the kinds of people who just do whatever you want and you don't allow Christ to be your master and Lord. 
You, you're the Lord of your life and you run your own life. If that's you still today here, friends, can I invite you into the freedom, the freedom and the beauty of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ where you don't have to try to put up all the effort and do your own thing. Let Christ take over. Let him take the will and free you from the slavery to self. Self-salvation won't get you there. You can be a self-made man in this world, self-made woman in this world who earns all kinds of money and power and prestige and those things. But literally, as I was charging these young people at a high school camp last week, we just talked about the fact that what good is it that a man would gain the whole world and then still lose his soul? Jesus asked a rhetorical question that all of us know, no good whatsoever. If you are that person, let us invite you into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ that will set your life in good order and help you to live a disciplined life that's firm in faith. If you are one of the persons who's like, yeah, I did that 10 years ago, but if I'm honest, you wouldn't be able to see that in my life there's good order. I'm not really standing firm in my faith because the thing that corrodes assurance of salvation is always going to be besetting sin. I just don't know that I'm worthy of God's grace if I just live like a bat out of hell and do whatever I want, do I? As we go to communion, we have an assurance that our past, present, and future sins have been forgotten or forgiven, and they've even been forgotten. They've separated from us as far as the east is from the west. You guys, I mean, I know it seems like it can happen, but does the east and the west ever touch? Like, how close are they? <laughs> right? Like, God says literally it just don't happen. If they're in the same place, they're not the same thing. And so your sin and you, you're just, this is not because of Jesus Christ. That's the broken body and the poured out blood, Right? Let's live lives that are worthy of it. Let's see faith, hope, and love be known among us and about us in good order. We're going to sing in a moment. As the band comes up, we're going to sing a song, a new song, Purge Me. My prayer is that God would purge us, that he would make us like him. And that we will find the grace that we need to be able to say, you know what, I am going to, just like Paul, struggle and toil and fight for what's worth fighting for.